me to the book of James, James chapter 2. While you're turning to James 2, I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider how strange it is that at periodic occasions, the leader of Christianity, Jesus, asked his followers, even assumed that his followers would, as an act of devotion to God, stop eating. Called it fasting. That is, religious people have found throughout the years that they would stop eating for a while as a version of religious devotion. You ever thought how weird that is? <laughs> hmm, what shall we do for God? I know, let's deny ourselves something that we need to live every day. How about that? It feels like a bit of a strange rite until you begin to think about the idea of what faith really is. We started Friday night by suggesting what faith was not. Faith is not sort of a wish projection of trying to get God to conform to our version of life that we want. Nor did we find out on Saturday morning that faith was somehow opposed to our reason. As a matter of fact, all reasoning is based upon some kind of faith. Last night, though, I tried to tell you that the essence of faith, the sensation of faith, feels a whole lot like emptiness. And to me, makes me think that that's the reason for fasting. In other words, what if the feeling, the physical sensation of hunger is the nearest physical analog to the spiritual experience of faith? Hunger is longing. Hunger is a desire to be filled. So is faith. Faith is a spiritual expression in the exact same direction. What I want to look at this morning, however, though, is the next step. And we look this morning just now at the passage that Jesus animates for us and gives us as an image of a vine and a branch to describe now the means by which faith begins to turn us into different people. I want to read in coordination with that, though, from James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word again. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Thus ends the reading of God's word for us this morning. Let's pray before we consider it. Lord Jesus, you have been with us thus far. We know because our minds are churning. We have examined ourselves. We have examined your scripture. 
We are deeply curious this morning, but no more curious than we could be about the things inside us that we wish weren't the way they were. And so maybe this morning, if you could give us some insight into how it is that we change, we might walk away from this weekend forever changed. If you would do so, we would be grateful. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night I tried to tell you that salvation comes when God's people look to, not yourself, but actually look to Jesus. Now I I understand very clearly, because it's not been that so long ago, that that is religious jargon. (laughs) It's very easy for religious types like myself to come around these kinds of things and say, well, what you need to do is look to Jesus. And you would be absolutely in your rights to, to say to yourself... Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that I look to Jesus? And to illustrate that, I want you to consider something. Let's imagine that yesterday you are traipsing through the woods here with a friend and you stumble across uh, a, a log in the midst of the path. You literally stumble across a log and you fall and strike your head against a rock in the pathway. You are in trouble, you are disabled. The ambulances come out and haul you away to the hospital. And the doctors, as they begin to examine you, find that your life intake apparatus, that we call your mouth, uh, is not working. You're unconscious. You can't get life from that mechanism. And so what they do is, is they'll take a small needle and they'll slap against your arm and they'll try to find a vein And they'll insert that needle into that vein. Now, if you're one of those people that gets faint when you think about needles, just ignore me for two seconds here. But that needle then gets hooked up to uh, life-giving fluids. And as long as you are connected to those fluids, you can survive for quite a long time while your body begins to repair itself. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that someone snuck in, let's say one of your sort of trickster friends, and trades that bag of life-giving fluids for a bag of, let's say, motor oil and hooks it up to your IV. My guess is your body will begin to experience dysfunction, right? It'll begin to break down. Why? Because your body was not meant to sustain itself on that. Look, here's my premise this weekend. Every single person in this room, whether you are religious or not, whether you view yourself on the inside of Christianity this morning or whether you're still on the outside looking in, not very sure, I want to submit to you that every single one of you was born with a life intake apparatus that only locks on to spiritual things. It is a spiritual IV that everyone has. And from the moment of your birth... You began to search for a place into which you could plug that apparatus and draw life off of it. God says that because of the nature of our sin, we have all attempted to plug that IV into a thousand different things other than the one thing that would truly sustain us, namely Him. We call that in the Bible, idolatry. But I want you to understand that that mechanism is always at work and the Bible has a word for it. It's called the heart. Now there's a whole lot of confusion about what we mean by the heart. For most of you, when I say heart, you think purely of your feelings. 
But actually in the Bible, it's a far broader, much more central uh, feature of your psyche than that. Bible actually says that not only do your feelings, but also your thinking, even your choices extend from this mechanism called the heart. And it is busy trying to find places where it can plug in. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for from it, it flows all of the issues of life. The ESV says, for it is the wellspring of life. The Bible assumes that you have a center to your personality. Your rationality, your emotions, your volitions all extend from this thing called the heart. For that reason, you cannot talk about the topic of faith without understanding your heart. Now, why am I going into all this? It is because when we get to the topic of change and the Christian life, this is where the confusion starts. And begins to compound. That is, many people start to say, how is it now that I've been introduced to this Jesus, that to some degree I'm wanting to seek after him or look to him, how is it that I change? I find college students falling into one of three different places. The first version is what we might call the mechanical view of change. These are people that say, you change through following a carefully orchestrated multi-step process. The diet programs thrive on this kind of mentality. One, two, three steps to a new you, and suddenly I change. The second sort of form of change is what we might call the moralistic view of change. That is, we come and we discover a new set of rules, a new way of thinking, a new way of approaching life, and we say to ourselves, this is going to be the new me, and we remind ourselves over and over again to keep the new rules. These ladies are the little index cards of Bible verses that we attach to our bathroom mirrors so that we can remind ourselves of the way in which we're going to behave today, the moralistic view of change. The third kind that I see college students wrestling with is not mechanistic or moralistic, but it's mystical. These are people that are looking and waiting for the power to come and change. God said he would come and change me, and so I'm waiting for it to happen. Eventually, there'll be this thing that just takes over me, and I transform by some outside power. My eyes might even roll back in my head, perhaps, and I will be a victim of this sort of spirit-channeled thing. Look, y'all, what does faith say about change? I want to look at three things this morning. I want to understand, first of all, the relationship between faith and change. I want to understand the relationship between faith and works. And then finally, the relationship between faith and Jesus. Faith and change, faith and works, and then faith in Jesus. Look, first of all, what all of those approaches have, the mechanistic, the moralistic, and the mystical, what they all have in common is that they all rely on an outside force to bring about a change of behavior. In other words, change in this view is always manipulated from the outside. But in John chapter 15 that we just read, Jesus is describing an entirely different way to think about change. That change is not coerced from the outside, but change is going to happen when God places a brand new, and forgive me, this is the best phrase I can come up with, a brand new internal dynamic inside your life intake apparatus, your heart, 
so that all of a sudden change creates more than mere compliance. Jesus is teaching us about an organic view of change that comes from the inside, from a new principle in your soul. The only other option is to be manipulated change from the outside. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Um, On numerous occasions, I've had this experience uh, as a campus minister. Let's say the young man walks into my office because his girlfriend is ready to leave. She's done. And upon talking to her, she says something along the lines of this. He doesn't listen. He isn't sensitive to my needs. He orders me around. He's not open. I'm done. I'm finished with this guy. And the guy becomes sorrowful. And he looks at her and pledges, even in the midst of tears, I'll change. Give me another chance. And so she does. And for a while, he does. He changes. But after a while, her anger subsides. She warms back up to him again. And what happens to his old patterns? Slowly they start to creep right back into the relationship and we're in the same spot we were before. Why? Because the only reason he had for change was fear of her leaving. His change, that is, was coerced from the outside by fear alone. There was no power inside of him, what I'm calling an internal dynamic, to change his behavior. We might be the nice boyfriend guy for a while, but after a while, there's no real motivation. He always reverts to who he really is in the end. Sound familiar? Look, my friends, what I'm trying to say to you this weekend is, is that you, and you should be realizing that it is possible to see how easy it is to mistake real life change for a temporary neurosis. I'll even go so far as to say that when I talk to students throughout the years of ministry, when asked to describe your spiritual life, you speak in these terms. That is, you assume, this is huge, this is all I really want to say this morning right here. (laughs) You assume that the way in which you change is by placing the thought of God as a judge over your actions. And you will change out of sheer fear of what he will do to you if you don't. My friends, that is relying upon an external dynamic of fear rather than an internal dynamic that is organic and on the inside. John Newton, the author of the uh, 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 song Amazing Grace, has a collection of letters that the Banner of Truth uh, put out that you absolute must reading uh, for students that are going to be involved in RUF in any way. In the first edition of those letters, he talks about a typical religious conversion that someone has. You know, it happens early on that they decide they've gotten away from God. You ever spoken those terms to your campus minister? You know, I just feel like this semester I've, I've just kind of gotten away from God. They want to come back. And so what they do is they put their focus on serving and on business rather than on friendship with Jesus. They look and say, I, I just got to get back to Bible study. And they ignore an idea of wanting to join, to be connected to him. And it's so easy to do that this Christian embraces salvation by grace. But it's very hard for the heart to believe that. And so we get busy trying to do and trying to to keep up and to keep things together to show God that we're worthy of salvation. Right? We look and say, surely God must love me if I'm doing all of these things. And Tim Keller says this, you subtly begin to change 
from inferring God, God's love, you change from inferring God's love to, um, uh, to actually drawing on His love. In other words, we infer that God loves me because of the things that I've done rather than drawing on His love because of what He's done for us. It's an incredibly subtle change. But when it changes, you begin to stunt your growth because it's not internally organic. It's not of the relationship of a vine to a branch. If the branch is meaningfully connected to the vine, think about it. It is drawing life-giving sap and nutrients from the vine, Jesus says. And that's how I want you connected to me, connected at your heart to delight in friendship with me. And true change comes from that. You bear much fruit, which brings me to the second point, faith and change. Secondly, faith and works. Look, when you frame it this way, it'll keep you from getting confused about this. I remember having a student ask me this question. They said, Les, honestly, I don't know why you're all worked up about this. Whether or not change comes from the outside or whether it comes from the inside, does it really matter as long as you get the desired result? Did you ever have to, did you ever have to read A Clockwork Orange? There's a wonderful conversation in that book. It's a filthy book. I'll go ahead and own that. Don't watch the movie, for heaven's sakes. Um, not that I would know anything about that. <clears throat> you remember the conversation that Alex has with the priest while he's in the hospital? And at one point during that conversation, the priest says, in not so many words, what is it that God wants from us? Does he want us simply to want to change? Or does he want us simply to change? It's a huge treatise on the question of change, A Clockwork Orange. But of course, the answer from the Bible is both. They want both. But the problem is... Change motivated purely by, uh, by slavish fear doesn't work in the long haul. Because if you approach it, one of two things happen. Either on the one hand, you will fail. And when you fail, you will suddenly become someone who burns out. My guess is there's some of these people in this room already. You're that person that people are talking about back at home. You know, I don't know, but when they were in high school, I mean, she was a good girl. Well, she went off to that college, though, and whew, boy, see what she's been up to? And, of course, your parents are going to go, oh, tisk tisk, these colleges today. You burn out, and you give up, and you drop off. This is some of your description of your freshman year. The other option, though, is if you don't burn out, is that you become, is you succeed. You actually are successful in managing some of the uglier parts of your life. And what happens is, is you become extremely prideful. Oh, you're doing all the right things. You look right. But one thing that you cannot mask is an utter contempt for other people. You are powerfully condescending to those around you. And you can't even see it. But we can. We feel it in your every interaction. Change, when it comes on the basis of fear, will always produce either self... uh, um, Self-destruction, depression, and burnout on the one hand, or self-righteousness and pride and condescension on the other. It never creates that unique self-image that brings about real change. Look, a Christmas tree looks a whole lot better on the lot than when you bring it home and let it sit in your living room for three months. Three weeks. Three months. (laughs) We celebrate Christmas early in our house. Why does it look terrible after a few weeks in your house? Because it's not connected to the soil. 
It's been uprooted. It dies. My friends, the question of change that John 15 is asking you is do you have that internal connection? And as long as we're defining it this way, we can now understand what James is saying in James chapter 2. You do realize people have had a lot of problem with this passage over the years. This has stumped a lot of people because they look and say, well, you know, James was sort of a works man and the Apostle Paul was sort of a faith man. And, you know, this is where the Bible contradicts itself in a zillion different places. It's just one example. I've heard that 15 times over the years. But that's not what James is saying. James is simply saying not that salvation is not by grace through faith, but that a faith by itself doesn't save anyone. A false faith is not real faith. That's what James is saying. In other words, it was a misunderstanding of true faith. And I would suggest to you that that he understood what it meant to simply have faith to be connected to Christ. Martin Luther was the one who said, salvation is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Why? Because you are whatever your heart is plugged into. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. He says, look, you have become like your idols. You have erected idols of wood and of stone, and that is exactly what's happening to your hearts. They're becoming like wood and stone, impenetrable to God's advances. My friends, we will always become like what you're hooked up to. That is, if you draw your life off of your dating relationship and you have connected the true meaning of your life to that relationship, guess what's going to happen to that relationship? It will fail because your partner was never designed to bear the weight of your idolatry. Some of you are starting to get a prickly heat on the back of your neck right now. Because you're realizing that that's exactly what's motivating your dating relationship. And it's the reason why you are so incredibly short and impatient with that person. Oh, you talk about loving them. But the second that you find that they're talking to some other dude at the party instead of you, you can dig in with a screw of vindictiveness like nobody's business. And she feels too guilty to say as much. So I get to say it to you. You have idolized her. The crazy thing about relationships is the only way in which you actually allow them to flourish is to have another lover first. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these other things, like this girlfriend or boyfriend that you so long to have, will be added to you. C.S. Lewis was the one who said, if first things are made second then not only will you not get the first things, but you also denigrate the second things. Aim at heaven, and you'll get heaven and earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you'll get neither. This, my friends, is a Christian anthropology. It is the way in which you are designed to function in union and communion with the living Christ. Like a vine to a branch, drawing life-giving sap off of him. And in the end, becoming like what he is. One last point, faith in Jesus, and we'll finish with this. Do you notice here that it's very interesting the way in which James explains the way in which you identify real faith is your attitude towards other, others, especially the poor. I don't know about you, but I used to read James chapter 2 when I was uh, growing up. James chapter 2 made me nervous. 
faith without works is dead. And I would think, works. I haven't read my Bible in weeks. I haven't prayed in a long time. Ooh, I hope I do this right. What's funny though is those are not the works that James is talking about. Look at the text in verses 14 through 17. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and you look at them and say, peace, be warm and be filled. What help does that bring to them? What is James saying? James saying, do you want to know what the works are that I'm looking for? The works that faith produces means that you begin to look at the other people whom the world casts aside and you say, those are my people. That is, you get the poor in a different way. You get the disenfranchised in a brand new way. You find yourself relating to, having connection with the outcasts of life in a unique way. (laughs) Jim Gaffigan, sorry, bear with me. Jim Gaffigan's latest, uh, his latest uh, album, Mr. Universe, has a little bit on his, you know, the fact that he has no interest in going to church with his wife. His wife is a good Catholic. He's like, most of the reason why I don't like going to, he goes, if if you Catholics have not been to Mass lately, it's still going on. Um, He says, most of the reason why I don't like to go there is because it seems as if my wife walks in the door and says, let's stick around for forever and talk to the weirdest people here. There's a part of me that wonders if Jeannie Gaffigan is not converted (laughs) because she comes into a place of worship and she looks for the outcasts. She looks for the disenfranchised. She looks for the people that we would look at and say, why in the world would I ever have a relationship with those people? The answer is, is because you understand what it's like to be one of those people. A Christian gets the poor. A Christian serves the poor. Because he looks and says, I know what poverty of spirit is like. And if you experience a poverty of body, I get that. The reason why we ignore the needs of the broken in life is because we cannot be bothered with it. We don't connect with it. We don't relate to it. And so we build a world of distance, safe distance away from any of those elements in life. Not for Christians. James says, look, you'll know if faith is operating in you because you'll look at people for whom you used to have nothing in common and you'll say, I get you. You and me need to have a relationship. Here's my question though, and I'll finish with this. What in the world would ever have caused that? What would have caused you to suddenly get disenfranchised people in that way? Well, I think it's inferred for us In John 15, verse 6, Jesus looks and says, Look, you have to understand that useless branches have really only one purpose in life, and that is to be cast off and burned. The word there he uses there in the Greek is that those branches should be cut off. And unproductive branches in Jesus' world are going to be cut off and burned, he says. So here's my question this morning for you. Anybody feeling unproductive besides me? Look, there are numerous promises throughout the New Testament that say that when Jesus hung on the cross, it says that he was cut off from his people. 
My friends, this is the beauty of the gospel and what suddenly makes me see the poor and the outsiders in a different way is that I realize that on the cross, Jesus was cut off for me so that I could be grafted back in, meaningfully connected to the life-giving sap of His grace. And every time I begin to sense that unproductiveness, this is what we did this morning (laughs) when we confessed our sin. Does that feel ritualistic to you? It's really not. Because we're reminding ourselves one more time that though I am deeply saddened by our lack of production, Jesus comes with more grace and we are drawn to him. And hopefully this time I begin to draw more off of him and more change comes about on the other side. Look, y'all, this is the life of faith. I spoke last night with someone with whom I was sharing this simple idea. Thank you, by the way, for your questions, your comments. They have been so helpful to me. What is the life of faith? The life of faith begins in curiosity. It begins with you this morning saying, you know what? I honestly would love to think that this stuff was true. I want to go investigate it. My friends, that is a faithful act. It begins with seeking. It begins with finding. It begins with rejoicing. It begins with learning. It begins with listening and conferring. Some of you are uh, disconcerted because in RUF, we do not give what we call invitations, where we have people at the end of the service sort of bow their heads and close their, close their eyes and raise their hands in response to a sinner's prayer. And there's reasons for that that you can talk to your campus minister about. He'll give you all the answers to gaps that I've left in my messages this weekend. It's all right. But here's the thing. So many people come to me and be like, well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> In the face of what you said, what do I do? I mean, should I pray a prayer? To which my answer is always, yeah. <laughs> like, pray lots of prayers. Pr- pray without ceasing, I think the Bible says. Okay, well, I mean, shouldn't I, like, read my Bible or something? Yes, absolutely. Go read your Bible. <laughs> uh, should I, like, commit to going to RUF more and plug myself into a small group Bible study for the remainder of this semester? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, do that too. Because those things are means to an end. Not ends in themselves. These are not the ends of grace. They're the means of grace. I pursue those things because I hope that in my prayers and in my scripture reading and in my attendance at RUF, I look and say, give me more of Jesus. And when that happens... Change happens. It comes about because of a new internal organic dynamic inside of your soul when you're meaningfully connected to Him. Come on, y'all. You can't not ask the question this morning. Am I connected to Him in that way? Let's pray. And Lord, would you give us the grace to ask that question honestly first but then perhaps also to be renewed in wanting to answer it well by doing nothing more than making us curious, by making us driven to know, to want to hear from you more, to hear from you again. Would you visit us then, Lord Lord Jesus, with your spirit? Make me pure. Make us pure. Keep us low 
seeking only your grace to know. Draw us to yourself. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.